Welcome to Prodigal Church. Uh, this is the finale of our Losing My Religion series, and we've been looking at the irreligious good news of Jesus. Um, and if you missed any of them, we encourage you, you could check it out online, iTunes, or YouTube, or our website. Um, it's been, we've been journeying together on the irreligious nature of the good news, the message of Jesus. Um, picture a DJ at a large urban club, okay? He's got his headphones on, and he is jamming, feeling great. But there's a problem. He never turns on the main speakers. And if he were to only look up and see people standing there with the sound of crickets, uh, he realizes that he's missing the source. He might have awesome music, but he's missed the point of why he has the music. Or think of the absurd scenario of a postal worker, and he's got this big bag of mail, and he's proud, and he's so happy that he has it. In fact, he carries this bag of mail like a badge of honor. Look how popular I am. I have so much mail, yet he has forgotten that his purpose is to deliver that which he's been entrusted with. This is the case of religious Christians, looking the part, but missing the heart. Don't look the part and miss the heart. And as a pastor, um, for about 15 years, I've had just amazing conversations with people who um, maybe don't believe in Jesus. And I venture to say that most of them don't believe in God because of what they have seen, heard, read about, about Christians for the last 2,000 years. They would say that Christianity is the cause of countless suffering, death, torture, slavery. It's just like every other religion. Throw all religion out. Sometimes we as Christians try to defend the past that bears our names. And I just want to say from the get-go that if you have experienced or seen Christians acting very unchristlike, it's okay to not defend them, okay? That doesn't make us look great. And the hard truth is that Christianity doesn't have the greatest of histories. And so this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. This might be the most dark slash harsh sermon I've ever given. So you came on a great Sunday. Um, But we're going to kind of walk through Christian history and look through Christianity's house of horrors. Um, And this morning, we're going to look at the Christian church and see where our religion has gone wrong. And for time's sake, we're just going to bypass the first thousand years of Christian history when we first united with empire and began killing people in the name of the one we call the Prince of Peace. Uh, We're going to bypass a thousand years, and we're going to jump right into the Crusades. The Crusades. 1095, Pope Urban II called for the Knights of Europe to unite and to march against Jerusalem to save the Holy Land from Islamic infidels. Raymond of Agiles accompanied the crusaders as a, as a representative of the church, and he documented what he saw in Jerusalem, and this is what he wrote. Wonderful things were to be seen. Numbers of Saracens, Muslims, were beheaded. Others were shot with arrows or forced to jump from the towers. Others were tortured for several days, then burned with flames. Piles of heads, hands, and feet were to be seen in the streets of the city, It was necessary to pick one's way over the bodies of men and horses. But these were small matters compared to what happened at the Temple of Solomon. What happened there? 
If I tell the truth, it will exceed your powers of belief. So let it suffice to say this much at least, that in the temple and portico of Solomon, men rode in blood up to their knees and the bridal reins. Indeed, it was a just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers when it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. Men, women, children, Muslim, Jewish, all slaughtered in the name of Jesus. Um, at the end of the day's brutality, crusaders gathered for a time of worship. And they said that there were tears of joy because of God's victory. I think in heaven there were certainly tears that day, but they weren't tears of joy. In our history, we did not just kill people of other religions. Um, we killed those within our own religion. Now the Inquisition, 1231. This was a, a church-ordained doctrine that said uh, anybody who's suspected of heresy, of not believing in accordance to the church, can be tortured and killed. Um, you can torture suspected heretics. And the result was one of the most horrific realities that our planet has ever experienced. And the last victim of the Inquisition uh, was 1824. We think, oh, that's ancient times. That was when we were tribal and nomadic and violent in the Dark Ages. And yet it was just not that long ago, less than 200 years. And this anger and vitriol found within the church manifested in violence, torture throughout church history. But it's found a different expression today. Uh, today, it expresses itself in judgmentalism and hatred. And anger. I was reading an article about a Christian pastor, and he and his wife were driving in the car, and he was listening to uh, a televangelist on the radio. And he grew up in the conservative evangelical world, and as he's listening, the preacher starts talking and, and, uh, and getting pretty excited, and his wife says, what's he so angry about? And because this, this, this pastor was from the background, he, he knew that that's, he might not be angry. He's just, he's just preaching. He's just feeling it. And his wife paused, and she didn't come from a Christian background. And she says, if he was talking about any other subject, if he was talking about sociology or psychology or uh, selling a product, would you still think he's not angry? And when I listen this way, a light goes on. Uh, many Christian leaders and teachers seem to have an undercurrent of anger, and this anger manifests um, in an us-versus-them mentality. We're in, they're out. We're good, they're bad. We're right, they're wrong. We do this all the time in politics, right? We just had an election a year ago. Um, we got the red states who think that all the blue states are wrong and in trouble, We've got the blue states who think that all the red states are in trouble, and Jesus tells us we're all in trouble. <laughs> we can get lost in this religious mentality, keep the morals, keep traditions. We live better than most people do, and we kind of get a good feeling from that. We get a feeling like that we're superior to others, and sometimes we substitute that as an encounter with God, but it is not. Listen, it's not us versus them. It's us for him. There's this passage of scripture in the book of Joshua. Joshua is, and the Israelites are going to conquer the promised land. This was the, pro the promise from long ago when God promised Abraham this land of Canaan. And here the people are getting ready to march in and take the land that is rightfully theirs. 
If ever there was a time where God could, my iPad is, I don't know if you guys hear that, but that's definitely me. Um, if ever there was a time when God should be for someone and against someone else, it's the time when the Israelites, the people of God, should take the promised land. And as Joshua was approaching Jericho, verse 13 of chapter 5 says this, now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua fell face down to the ground with reverence. What message does the Lord have for a servant? Take off your shoes for the place you're standing is holy. There's no... There's no better drug than being right. It sells. It feels good. It's that nice pillow we sleep with at night. It's a comforting thing. And because we're on the right side of the fence, they're wrong, we're right, it excuses us from getting our hands dirty and really loving the world. We're safe in here, but it's very dangerous out there. And God has called us out into the wild world to be love, to show love, to share love. Witch hunts. Catholics and Protestants both sought the death of suspected witches. You could be brought on trial as a witch for any reason at all. Someone didn't like you. Almost always these witch trials and witch burnings were um, misidentified Christians taking the Old Testament law as their guide, anybody suspected of witchcraft was put on trial and sentenced to death. Um, modern historians differ on the estimations on how many people died during the burning age of the church. Uh, conservative estimates is 60,000. Uh, larger estimates are 200,000. I once heard Christians argue for the lower number as if to say, no, 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 let's minimize what we did, the bad stuff we did as though there was a great purpose in exposing the exaggerations of other people. To be clear, killing 60,000 people in the name of Jesus is 60,000 too many. We don't need to defend that. The real problem Christians need to face is not the exaggerated criticism of atheists, but the mind-blowing extent of the church's failure to follow Jesus. Philosopher Roy Clouser speaks for many of us when he says this, the history of religious institutions has been such an abysmal paranormal of bigotry, persecution, and cruelty, I can see why it could lead someone to wish to be rid of the whole business. In, a light of this, in light of this, one could say the teachings of Jesus must be false because the, the actions of the church, the fruit of the church over 2,000 years is violence, hatred, just like all the other religions. But I would agree with G.K. Chesterton who said this, the way of Jesus has not been tried and found unfruitful. The way of Jesus has been found difficult and left untried. It is the church's failure in actually following the teachings of Jesus that has led to the violence, hatred, bigotry that we find still within our own religion. 
This us versus them posture that we have in the church has got to stop. It doesn't lead to transformation. It doesn't lead to the expansion of God's kingdom in our world. And it doesn't lead to love of neighbor. It leads to hate of neighbor. And it's got to end. There's a, I read an article of an MB pastor, Mennonite Brethren pastor, in the 1970s. And he was a conscientious objector, like many Mennonites were, uh, during the, the uh, Vietnam War. And what the government did was, uh, oh, you think you're a conscientious objector? You have a moral conviction why you shouldn't be in war. So what they did is they put him in uh, uh, mental hospitals and said, you be an orderly here. That's, that's your act of service. And these patients weren't dealt with correctly. Often, the orderlies would end up beating the, the patients, and it always resulted in violence because it was so difficult. But he had such a strong, this pastor had such a strong conviction that, that, that he wasn't supposed to do violence, that he began to love them. No matter what people did to him, even the patients misbehaving, uh, he would never result in violence and just love them. And it actually began to transform that place and actually mental health practices grew and changed because of people like this, conscientious objectors who transformed these institutions because of love. And this pastor in early 2000s was giving a sermon and he was telling the story about his conviction uh, and how it's transformative. At the end of his sermon, he says, you know, like, I just think that Jesus wouldn't want us to do that. Um, I think we should love above all else, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Dude has lived his whole life with this conviction. He believes it with the deepest parts of who he is. He actually served in incredible ways at, at, at incredible cost to himself all of his life. And he gives this powerful sermon. And then he says, I could be wrong. Even the way in which he holds his beliefs was nonviolent. The way in which we hold our beliefs and share our beliefs should always be Christ-like. You ever met someone who's just like zealously Christian? I'm a, I'm a pastor, okay? I'm, I'm pretty Christian, and I don't want to be around those kind of Christians. The way we hold our beliefs and share our beliefs should be Christ-like. And lastly, as we take our tour through Christian history, infighting, infighting. When people don't have a mission to fight for, they fight each other. We fight each other. This church versus that church, that theology versus this theology, that doctrine versus this doctrine. We're so divisive. And in John 17, Jesus prays that we may be one as he and the Father are one. And we want to be a church that actually brings about Jesus' prayer in the garden 2,000 years ago. A man was standing in line for a 5 o'clock subway in Manhattan, and a passerby noticed this WWJD bracelet on his wrist and said, Hey, are you a Christian? The man said, Yes. He says, Great, me too. It's, it was great to see someone in the big city. They, they didn't know there was many others. He says, what kind of Christian are you? Orthodox, Catholic, or, or Protestant? He says, Protestant, me too. Liberal or conservative? Conservative, me too. Anglican, Baptist, Presbyterian, Mennonite, or Methodist? Baptist, 
Me too. Southern Baptist, Baptist General Conference, or First Baptist? <laughs> Southern Baptist, of course. Me too. What's your eschatological theology? Are you premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial? And he says, amillennial. And the man smugly walks away and says, sinner. <laughs> What's the deal with denominations? There are over 3,000 different Christian denominations on the planet. And Jesus prayed that they may be one as I and the Father are one. Most of these denominations had their genesis, their beginning in an inability to stay unified in the face of disagreement. Can we please learn to disagree in a beautiful, loving way? That is so necessary. Choosing to see what's good in the other, even though you vehemently disagree with them. That's okay. Religious people are notorious for confusing acceptance with agreement. When that happens, people assume that the disagreement must result in rejection and condemnation. It mustn't. There was one mistake in, to which the early church never was in danger of. In the early days, men never thought of Jesus Christ as a figure in the book. They never thought of someone who had lived and died and story who was passed down from generation to generation. They did not think of him as someone who had been, but someone who is. He wasn't someone whose teaching must be discussed, debated, relativized. Their faith was not founded on a book. Their faith was founded on a person. That same person is alive and well today. And as we close out this series, maybe the best illustration for this sermon series in the life of Jesus is his interaction with the teacher of the law in Luke 10. And it's this, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We talked about it maybe a couple months ago. We're not going to really dive into that part of the parable. But Luke 10 says this, on one occasion, an expert in the law, that is first century way of saying a very, very religious person, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? He wanted to justify what he thought. You see, God wants obedience, and we want options. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Yes, done. Yes, I got that. Perfect. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who are we talking neighbor, Jesus? Who do you want me to love? We are often like that expert in the law, trying to reduce God's commands to something that we can live with. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down to, from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, again, a paid religious person, happened to be going on the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, who is the priestly clan of Israel, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. According to the letter of the law, these two religious men, the priest and the Levite, did what was expected. Okay, uh, you would be ritually unclean if you touched anybody who is bleeding. And if he was dead, you'd be unclean for an even longer amount of time. And these guys could easily justify not doing anything, right? I have to go and do my temple sacrifices. I have to go help people. 
And so according to the letter of the law, they did what was right. But if your religion doesn't have room to become ritually unclean in the name of love, you're not following the same Jesus we find in the scriptures. See, the religion of the priest and Levite led them to inaction, not action. The priest and the Levite, they grabbed coffee afterwards. They probably had a religious conversation. They're like, what's this world coming to? Somebody ought to do something about that. Leaving someone for dead, man, those people are going to hell in a handbasket. They may have felt bad for the man. That's us. We feel bad. And one of the ways we excuse ourselves from doing good is by feeling bad. Our problem is we're feeling bad when we should be doing good. There's a big difference between being a follower of Jesus and just being someone who follows the rules. Big difference. Tim Keller shows the difference between a Christian and a moralist. He says this, the difference between a Christian and a moralist is a moralist will repent for the things they have done wrong. A Christian will not only repent for the things they have done wrong, but also for the reasons they have done things right. Do we need to do any repentance for the reasons in which we obey God? What selfish benefits do we get from being a good Christian? Well, we get approval of others. We get people thinking that, oh, that's the perfect family. They got it all together. We think if we keep the rules that God has to bless us. That's the way of religion, not the way of the cross. See, religious people obey God to get things. Gospel people obey God to get God. And the difference is massive. I want to invite Stephen and the worship band to come up. This issue of religiosity, it's killing the church's witness to the world. The greatest enemy to Christianity is not atheism, secularism, Islam. The greatest enemy of Christianity is bad Christianity. More than once throughout the Bible, when Israel continued their religious practices, God rebuked them. He says this in the book of Amos, chapter 5. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with your noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But then you recognize this from Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. If your Bible reading is not making you more loving, more Christ-like, you're reading the Bible wrong. If your religious practices don't make you more merciful, more compassionate, you're reading it wrong. Do any of you need to repent from that us-them mentality? God, you're for us, right? The commander of the Lord's army says, neither. 
Do any of us need to repent of the religiosity from within? This is something we've never done here at Prodigal. Um, but we're just, during this time of worship, as the band starts to play, we're going to have some leaders in our church who just simply love God and love people. That's the purpose of Prodigal Church, love God, love people. And they're going to be kind of down here and over here and maybe on the sides. And man, if you have a need during this song, would you go up to them and say, hey, could you pray for me? Introduce yourself. Hey, what's up? I'm Chris. And, and this is what I'm going through. And, and they just want to love on you and pray for you, encourage you. Uh, maybe you've been burned by religion. And I just want to let you guys know this. Religion and church and institutions are incapable of burning people. People burn people. No one's ever been burned by Christianity. No one's ever been burned by a religion. They've been burned by the people that try and represent that faith. And if you have been burned by a person in the Christian church, and there is just some baggage with that, and you, you want to be able to forgive, you want to be more Christ-like in that, man, feel free to come up and pray with someone. Uh, if, if you yourself have such a tough time of seeing good and choosing to love the people who disagree with you so vehemently, and God wants you to be a person who can agree to disagree in a beautiful Christ-like way, it's okay to ask for prayer for that. Listen, we're together and not having it together. And so during the song, I know some of these leaders that, that might be out there uh, praying for you guys, I didn't even ask them. I'm just calling them out right now. Hey, if you're willing, feel free to be on the sides. And uh, man, we're in, we're in it together and not having it together. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much um, for this series and, and for your words and how you call us to action. And so God, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. And I pray, God, that as things arise in our hearts that we need to pray, maybe we need to repent of our religiosity, our closed-mindedness, um, a religion that we've adopted because we look, we look good to others. And it has moved us to inaction instead of action in our world. We've stayed safe within the walls of our own aquarium, and you're calling us to the wild ocean outside to be Jesus to the world. And so God, I pray in Jesus' name that we become that kind of community, those kinds of Christ followers, God. We turn from religiosity. We turn from the drug of being right. And God, help us to be righteous. Let justice flow and roll on like a stream. We need you, God, like a mighty river. God, we thank you that your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. You've never failed us yet, and you won't fail us now. Draw us closer to you, God, into a Walking world that's desperate. Amen. I thought by now faithful, but you have never failed me. Waiting for a change to come Knowing the battles won For you have never failed me yet 
This is my comfort. 